0: Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 6, where we'll look for the tenth time into the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first verse of chapter 5, which begins the sermon, tells us that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he had set himself, he began to teach them. And so we call it the Sermon on the Mount, because he preached it from a, being set in a mountain place to the multitudes of those that followed him. We've been at this for nine Sundays. Today's the 10th. And we come to 5 through 15 of Matthew chapter 6. I want to read these verses to you. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. We have three lessons here of how not to pray. And we have one model prayer to guide us in the manner of praying. Let us look at those four lessons that we have in verses 5 through 15. The first lesson we have is verses 5 and 6, how not to pray. And it's not to pray for men to hear it. And that's a hard thing to do. When you pray in public, or when you pray in a small gathering at home, Or when you pray at the table, there's part of your mind that, without great discipline, is thinking of what others are thinking of your choice of words and your choice of prayer. And the Savior warns us against that right here. We want to pray to our Father in heaven, we want to pray to God, and we do not want to pray before men. The Jews were so hypocritical in their religion that it tells us here that... They loved to pray standing in the synagogues out loud in front of people where there was no cause for it. They would just stand up and begin praying in public in order to present themselves as a very holy or righteous person. And so the Savior is condemning that false religion because we ought not to do things to be seen by men in a religious way. We want to be seen by our Father in heaven because that's where prayer counts. If you are praying to be heard by men, the Bible says you've got your reward. They heard you. They can't do a thing about what you prayed for because they don't have the power. But if they heard you and you prayed for them, then your Father in heaven isn't going to hear you. He wants you praying to him and to him alone with a single heart, not wanting to be heard by men and to be thought of as being great and holy by them. So he said in verse 5, don't pray like the hypocrites do who love to pray standing and they even do it on the corners of the streets. Verily, I, I tell you, they've got their reward if, if they are praying simply for the purpose of having other people think that they are religious, then they've got their reward. They've got what they were looking for. But if you want God to hear your prayer and to answer it, He tells you what to do in the next verse. He says, When thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. Now those words right there, to go into your closet and shut the door and pray to your Father in secret, we understand those to be hyperbole, just like we understood back in verse 3, that when Jesus said, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does when you're giving to the poor, He didn't literally mean, that you can keep your two hands from knowing what the other hand is doing. Right. That's an exaggeration to make a point. And it's not an ungodly exaggeration. We use it in speech all the time, and it has a name. It's called hyperbole. It's an understood exaggeration that makes a very strong point. Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. And what he meant was, make your giving in private between you and me and that poor person... Not to be seen by other men. And here he says, when you go into your, if you're gonna pray, go into your closet and shut the door. Now, unless you have a walk-in closet, that might be tight. The Lord didn't really mean it, literally. He just meant, by way of hyperbole, when you're gonna pray, don't do it in the synagogue. Don't stand in a street corner trying to impress people of how religious you are. Go into a closet. And all he means is, do it in private. Do it in private where only God sees you. You know, sometimes we're in our automobiles. What closet are you going to enter then? Are you going to stop at a rest area and get in your trunk? I mean, if if we're going to try to take the Word of God literally without understanding the sense of what Jesus Christ is teaching. You can pray while you're driving because if no one else is there, they don't know you're praying. And if you're welcome to pray... Silently to yourself, they still don 't know that you 're praying That's right. And the purpose being, you are praying to the Lord, not for men to hear you. There's nothing wrong in praying in front of others as long as still one, in that you 're addressing your Father in heaven, he your words is all that you care about. There 's nothing wrong praying in public because the Bible 's filled with public prayers. there 's not a thing in the world wrong with it, but it 's your heart attitude. And your ear attitude, am I praying for men to hear me, or am I praying for men to hear me? And we want to keep our motives pure in that matter. That is the lesson of verses 5 and 6. Jesus promises that our Father, which seeth in secret, because the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding your prayers. It doesn't matter whether you're praying in bed at night with the lights out. God sees and hears your prayers, or if you were in that closet with the door shut, God sees and hears your prayers. Right. Or if you're in an automobile and you're driving and you're praying, God sees and hears those prayers. And if you pray in secret, without a desire to impress men, your Father in Heaven such a and He will reward you openly by giving you the desire of your heart and even those things that you're not wise enough to pray for. Right, right. As we'll see before I finish this morning. That worship. He just wants us praying to Him and not for others. Let's go to the second lesson. Verse 7. The lesson in verses 7 and 8 is for us to pray in an intelligent way without... Chanting without memorized prayers, without rote prayers, in which you just mouth words, your soul and mind being attached to those words. Our brother Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen. He said, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. Amen. God only hears prayers that are formed by your heart and your mind together. The mere sound of words doesn't mean a thing to him. You know, when, you, when we read the Bible, can you think of an example in the Old Testament where a bunch of prophets, and there were a whole lot of them, several hundred, called upon their God from morning until noon. Do you remember? They had one short prayer, didn't they? Oh, Baal, hear us. O Baal, hear us. Did he hear them? There is no God named Baal. He didn't hear a thing. There wasn't a he to hear. How about in the New Testament? When the apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus, do you remember that for two whole hours, it tells us the townspeople of Ephesus cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, over and over. And see, that's why Jesus said this is how heathen people pray. They pray repetitious prayers. That's a heathen way of praying. A Bible way of praying, and God's people have always prayed this way, is to talk to God. And you don't talk to anyone else by going around with a piece of paper and reading something to them that someone else told you to say. And every time you see them, you read the same thing to them. That isn't a prayer. That isn't communication. That isn't thinking. That's not intelligent. That's rude. That's rote. That's heathen, according to the Bible. And so the Savior said, When ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard much speaking. We're not Roman Catholics. We pray according to the Bible. Roman Catholics carry a string of beads to keep track of how many times they repeat rote prayers. Nowhere is that ever taught in the Bible. And what is taught in the Bible is that that's wrong. According to Matthew chapter 6, 7 and 8. Amen. And so that's why we don't do it. They carry a string of 55 beads and they're just supposed to make three trips around that string of beads for 165 prayers. 150 of those are Hail Marys and 15 of those are Our Fathers, which we're about to get to. And so they, they, they just feel that bead under their thumb, under their finger, and they say another Hail Mary. Then they move to the next bead. And when they've counted ten, they feel the the odd bead that's got a little bit more chain. They know it's time for our Father. And so they just chant through it. Muslims are the same way. Have you ever heard a Muslim prayer at a mosque? They do it for the noise. They don't do it for the intelligence. And I don't blame them. Because if I was praying to Allah, I wouldn't try to reason with them intelligently either. Because there is no God named Allah. That's the imagined moon God of the Arabians. There is no God Allah. So no wonder they chant to it. Because it's their imagination at work. Right. The prayers in a mosque are just chanting. Right. You know, and it just drones on and on as they lay there on their little carpets, waiting for something to happen and nothing ever happens. But there's a God in heaven, and we read one prayer this morning from Acts chapter 4, and we, we saw that it was very intelligent, that it related to the circumstances of the events that had just happened in the lives of Peter and John. And it addressed those very specifically. It invoked prophecies from the Old Testament. It appealed to God as the creator of heaven and earth. And it had specific petitions in which they needed God's help. Right. It was a very specific prayer. We saw that already. You know, this morning I don't have time to take you through all the prayers of the Bible. But prayers in the Bible are intelligent. You are speaking to God. Jesus Christ has opened up the way so that we can go straight to God. We do not need saints. We do not need priests. There is no priest in the New Testament. There's only one priest in the New Testament. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other priest. You can read the New Testament from cover to cover, frontwards, then backwards. You can find apostles. You can find prophets. You can find pastors. You can find teachers. You can find deacons. There's no priest. The priest went away when the Old Testament went away. God's form of worship under the Old Testament had priests, but in the New Testament we have one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. who's in heaven at this hour and He's making intercession for us with His own blood. Thank you, Lord. That's our priest. Amen. And we can go straight to God that way and we can speak to Him. We can speak to Him while we're at work. Right. We can speak to Him while we're driving. We can speak to Him while we're in our beds. We can speak to Him while we're in this assembly. Right. And He hears us. And He does not hear us by much speaking of running through a bunch of rote prayers. You know, to teach your children, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food, you are just ruining them as far as Christians. Because that's not how Christians pray. That is a rote prayer. And they learn it, it just tumbles off their lips without engaging their mind and engaging their heart. And the Lord wants both involved when we pray. The Bible says, "...the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." Now, fervent means your heart has to be in it. And then Paul said, and I've already quoted it once, I will pray with the understanding. So your mind has to be involved. So when you pray, you have to get your heart and your mind involved. And if it's only your rote brain, you've got neither working. You're just spilling words from your mouth. We want our heart and our mind. In order to avoid sinning against God by violating these two verses. And that's rote praying. You know, God is great, God is good is one that many people use over food. And then there's, now I lay me down to sleep. What are you talking about? That sounds like Mother Goose. You know, teach your children how to pray, to beg God. Let them practice in front of you and coach them. Let them hear you pray when you have family prayer time. To let to let them hear you calling upon the name of God and blessing God and praising God, confessing your sins. And asking God for the needs that are in your life. Reasoning with Him in holy reasoning. And asking it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we want to pray. You know, the Savior went on to say in verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them. Don't pray like heathen people pray by repetitious, rote, memorized prayers. And He said, you don't need to multiply prayers by memorizing something and then just repeating it like a whole lot of repetition is going to mean something more than one. Because it doesn't. You know, there's no difference making one prayer to God, if you, if you make one prayer to God and you're trusting God to hear your prayer, than to say, our Father which art in heaven, 50 times. Because the, the quoting and the reading or the memorizing of our Father which art in heaven doesn't mean anything to God, as we're, we're going to see in just a minute. What He wants is our heart and our mind addressing Him and speaking to Him and begging Him from person to God, from saint to God, from child to father. We want to be asking Him for our needs, and He will hear that. He will hear that. And He wants you to know that multiplying memorized prayers doesn't work because God already knows what you have need of before you even ask. All He wants is to see that you'll get down on your knees and come to Him and admit by your prayer that you need Him to give it. Because without Him, you can do nothing. That's all He wants. And that does not take very long. All you have to do is get down. Get down and put Him up. And tell Him that you are trusting Him. That you need Him. He hears that prayer. Yes. He already knows what you have need of before you get down. Right. He just wants to see you get down. Amen. He wants to see you get down and admit your dependence and need for Him. And your love of him. And and your, and your willingness to admit that you're a sinner. And you're foolish. And that most of the troubles you have to pray yourself out of, you got yourself into them in the beginning. And so he wants to hear all that. He already knows it. You're not informing him of a thing when you pray. You're just letting him know that you know that he knows. All about you and your needs. And that you need him to help you. That's how we pray according to verses 7 and 8. Now here's our sample prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. In verse 9 he said, will you follow along with me please? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. After these precise words, I would like you to recite this prayer often. No way. Does it say that in your Bibles? No. After this manner, therefore pray ye. Jesus Christ was teaching his disciples a way of praying a general outline for prayer, a format for prayer, he wasn't giving them words to pray. He said, after this manner pray ye, and you know, when we read the rest of the Bible, we can't find another time that these words were ever used. Even if you go to Luke chapter 11, the first four verses, which has another account of the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer here, when we go there, it's a different prayer. It doesn't end the same, and it has different words in it. This is a format. This is an outline for prayer. There's no magic in these words. You can quote these words from now until the day you die. It will not do you one bit of good. Because there's no magic in the words. There's wisdom in the format. I hope you understand the difference. There's no magic in the words. There's wisdom in the format. There's wisdom in the outline that Jesus gives us. Now, we could go a while on this, and you know that. But let's just look at it briefly and see if we can't learn some things that Jesus is trying to teach us. You know, verses 5 and 6 were how not to pray. Verses 7 and 8 were how not to pray. Now he's telling us how to pray. So we want to look. We want to see what he has to say here about praying. And it's very short. Look, it only runs from verse 9 down through verse 13. Very short. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. The therefore is there because it is showing us that this prayer will be against what we've just read in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. This prayer will be different. I think it would be helpful if you held your hand at Matthew chapter 6 and looked at Luke chapter 18 with me for just a moment. Luke chapter 18, because we have to put our Lord's words into the context of what the Jews were praying like. Luke 18. Has he already told us in verse 5 that he is dealing with hypocrites? Yes, he has. So, I'm going to take up in verse 9 of Luke 18. Now, follow along with me and we'll understand a little bit more about what Jesus was correcting. Or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Amen. Amen. With that Pharisee's prayer in mind, God, I thank Thee that I'm not like other men. I'm such a good guy, and I'm especially better than this publican standing over here. A publican being a tax collector. So with with that kind of praying in mind, notice where it said that man prayed. He went up into the temple and just cut loose in front of everyone. And I'm especially better than this publican. That kind of hypocritical, self-righteous praying is what Jesus is warring against in his model prayer. And it's very different. It's much more like the prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen. And here's the, here's the format. Verse 9. Our Father, which art in heaven. Do you know that we often start our... What, how do we often start our prayers? Our Heavenly Father, Dear Heavenly Father. Right. I wonder where that comes from. Do you wonder anymore? more? It comes from this. Not the exact words, but the format and the outline of why we pray, Dear Heavenly Father. He is our Father. He is in heaven. He is dear to us if we truly love Him. And that's how we pray. These words are not to be used rotely. We are not to memorize these words and think that that's a prayer. We want to talk with God, not quote words that our heart and or our mind are not engaged in. Do you know that you can quote something that you've memorized thoroughly without either being involved? We want both involved. Our Father, which art in heaven. We address the creator God of the universe and we admit that he is in heaven. And so we say, our Father which art in heaven. There's so much in just those words, and you know I don't have time to exhaust each word of those phrases. But our Father, as soon as we say Father, what what does that imply about our understanding of God? We understand that Jesus Christ has paid the price for our adoption. That we're the sons of God, because Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, shed His blood to pay for our adoption. God is our Father, we are His children, and we can pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. Also, when we pray, Father, do you know what it admits of? It admits that we understand that He cares for us like a father cares for His children. Because if we just go one chapter further, we're going to learn that Jesus said, If you being sinners... If you men, being sinful fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know to give good gifts to those that call upon Him? And so when we say our Father, we're admitting what Jesus Christ has done for us, that there is now a relationship between us that that exceeds any father-son relationship the world has ever seen, and that we're admitting that He cares about us And he wants to treat us with good gifts. Like a a good earthly father wants to do for his children. When we say in heaven, we're reminding ourselves that this earth is not where it's at. We're reminding ourselves that God is very much higher than we are. Therefore, let thy words be few. Did Solomon teach us that in Ecclesiastes 5? In the words, our Father, which art in heaven. When we mention heaven... It reminds us to set our affection on heavenly things and things that are above rather than things on the earth. You know, if you said that with understanding, it might reduce some of your petitions that are purely carnally minded in which he said you ask things to consume it upon your lust. If you really thought of the word heaven and what you're saying, our heavenly Father, you would immediately lift your soul from earth and worrying about all the things here to get it into heaven and be thinking of the things that matter there. Just in those words, if you did it with your heart and your mind with understanding. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now hallowed means holy. You know that's where we get Halloween from all hallowed evening, the night before all saints day. And we don't celebrate Halloween, because we don't believe that any night where devils are worshipped and spirits like that has anything to do with holiness. But hallowed means to make something holy. Hallowed be thy name. God's name is holy. Now, we don't make it holy by saying, hallowed be thy name, but we admit that it's holy and we proclaim his holiness when we pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, when you start, when you pray with, like that, You are joining the the cherubim in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember the three words that they used when they were worshiping God, day and night? What are the three words? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6. The four beasts in Revelation chapter 4. What song are they singing? To him that sitteth upon the throne. Is it similar? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. So we immediately worship God in the attribute that he loves the most, his holiness. It's called worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. And when you mention the word holy, what does it say about your life? It puts your life under the brightest spotlight that the universe has ever seen, and that's the holiness of God. And we should think about holiness. Our flesh hates the holiness of God because holiness is the absence of sin and the hatred for sin. Holiness is absolute purity. No spot, no defilement, no sin, no temptation for sin. Holy, holy, holy is what we're saying we say, Hallowed be thy name. We're praying like Hannah did in First Samuel 2 and verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord. For you women, if you want to read a great prayer by a woman, it's the first ten verses of First Samuel chapter 2. It is a wonderful prayer. And her second verse is, there is none holy as the Lord. She knew how to pray like this, though Jesus came 1,000 years after she did. I wonder how she knew. Do you think God the Holy Spirit was moving her how to pray? Just as he taught the Savior how to pray. Hallowed be thy name. Only God's name is hallowed. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We do not mention any other names because there is no other name that is holy other than the name of Jesus Christ, and he is God in the flesh. We do not mention Mary. She is not holy. She needed a Savior as much as any other sinner. That's why she said that Jesus Christ was her Savior in Luke chapter 2. We don't invoke the names of angels. We don't invoke the names of saints because none of them are holy as the Lord. There's only one holy being. Those beasts that are around God in heaven are not proclaiming anyone else's holiness. They are only proclaiming the holiness of God. And that's where we want to keep the emphasis. God's name only is holy. We're not holy. No one else is holy. There's no angel that is holy in comparison to the holy God that we're addressing. Now that's, that's quite a bit different from the Pharisee. The Pharisee said, in other words, God I thank thee that I am so holy. Right. But notice how the publican prays, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Only thou art holy. And so we have holiness. And if we mention holiness, we should remember what the Bible says about it, that we should be holy even as God is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1. Holiness, holiness is living without sin. We cannot achieve it perfectly in this life but we can confess our sins and be cleansed from all iniquity by the faithfulness of God. And God is free from all sin. That's verse 9. Verse 10, thy kingdom come. We pray for an increase of his kingdom. Now when Jesus taught his disciples this, the kingdom of God had not come in full power yet. The Spirit of God had not come on the day of Pentecost yet. Jesus had not come with the Roman armies and wiped out his enemies in 70 A.D., in another display of His power. So those things were yet to come. But we're still looking for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we can pray for Jesus Christ's kingdom to be established on earth, strengthened, widened, broadened, and deepened. And may the Lord Jesus Christ return from heaven and take His rightful place on the throne of the universe. Amen. Which, is Similar to the prayer of Acts chapter 4, about the enemies of God mocking the preaching of the apostles, and how those apostles prayed for God to reach forth His arm and do something on their behalf against His enemies. We want to admit by the words, Thy kingdom come, that our God is King. The Lord Jesus Christ is King. He is the blessed and only potentate, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And so when we pray, we want to put Him in 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 His rightful place, on a throne of power, and humble ourselves beneath it. Thy kingdom come, I am a willing citizen. I am a willing subject of your kingdom power. Thy will be done in, in earth as it is in heaven. We admit that he is an absolute sovereign. You know what the Bible tells us? And I read it last Sunday evening. Do you remember from Daniel chapter 4? He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. Amen. There is an army in heaven. It's made up of 10,000 times 10,000 angels and thousands of thousands is how the Bible describes it. 10,000 times 10,000 angels is 100 million. And it's called the army of heaven. That's why he's called the God of hosts. Because a host is an army. In the Bible, they were called the captain of the host. If you were captain of the army, God is the God of hosts. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? It's what Nebuchadnezzar wrote of the God we worship. And so when we see the words, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, that is the Lord Jesus Christ teaching us to admit His sovereignty in our prayers. That His will is done. His secret will will always be done. And we want His revealed will to be done in our lives and the lives of anyone else that we can influence. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We admit the sovereignty of God in His secret will and we beg for His power in helping us keep His revealed will. That we want to be as obedient on earth as the angels are in heaven. And that's saying a lot, brethren. And I hope that we can pray a format like this and mean it. Because it is saying a lot. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We want not only ourselves but our families and our church and our nation to fear God and to obey His revealed will. Do you remember how Daniel prayed for his nation It grieved him? David said, rivers of waters run down my face because thy people do not keep thy commandments. Because we should want to see the will of God done. That's verse 10. We come to verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. We show our dependence upon God by asking for our daily bread. And there's wisdom in this. Notice in this prayer, it's not, God make me rich, because I would like to be financially independent. That's how many people pray, God make me rich. He won't hear it, never has, never will. Because any man that wants to be rich is going after the very wrong God, because the, the worship of money and the importance of wanting to be rich is opposite the worship of God. You can't have them both. You're trying to serve two masters with a prayer like that. You're trying to consume it on your lust, And so the prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. He asks for bread. He doesn't ask for a savings account. He doesn't ask for extra. He asks for bread to show that he's just looking for food convenient for him, just like Agur prayed in Proverbs chapter 30. Amen. Remember when Agar prayed? Don't make me rich. Don't make me too poor. Give me food convenient for me. Lord, I just want enough to provide my needs. Because I don't need more than that. Now if the Lord gives more, we thank Him for it. But we don't go seeking it. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice, it is not a prayer, give me bread lined up for the next year so that I won't have to pray anymore for another 200 or 300 days. It's give me this, give me this day our daily bread. Because it's showing our daily dependence upon God. And that's what He wants from us. He wants us trusting Him one day at a time, not even worrying about tomorrow. Before we get out of Matthew chapter 6, He's going to tell us not to worry about tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread. And you know, if you make a prayer like that, what do you have to do tomorrow? You have to pray it again. What do you have to do the day following? Pray it again. Give us this day our daily bread. Because he wants us praying every day that we will trust him one day at a time for him to dispense to us enough for that day. That's faith. That is faith when you will accept enough for today and not worry about the next day because you put the next day in his hands. That is faith. That's trust in God one day at a time. It's how we're supposed to live. Work hard for our daily bread. But we still ask God to give us this day our daily bread. Right. Because no matter how hard you might work, if God blows against it, you're not going to eat. Amen, man. God can blow against all your efforts and ruin your business. Have you laid off from your job? A famine can come. All sorts of terrible things can happen. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Even though we work very hard for that daily bread, we understand that God expects us to work hard and pray faithfully. And by that combination, He takes care of us. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. An important part of prayer is to confess your sins. Forgive us our debts. Lord, I owe you things I haven't paid. Lord, I've done things I should not have done. I haven't done things I should have done. Forgive me my sins. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, and forgive me my sins. But look at the Savior taught us, that we ought to pray regarding our sins. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And we're going to get this lesson in just a moment. So I'll pass over right here, except to say this. When you ask for the forgiveness of your sins, are you merciful in forgiving everyone who sins against you or who offends you. Because Jesus actually taught us to pray in this way, Father, forgive me, even as I forgive others. And if you're not forgiving others, then you have no grounds on which to make that prayer request, for God to forgive you. Verse 13, And lead us not into temptations, temptation, singular, but deliver us from evil. Those are the trials and tribulations and pain and difficulty and afflictions of life. And so a petition is, Lord, don't don't lead me into difficult times. You know, when I, when I read this, I think of the prayer of Jabez. Because Jabez said, Lord, deliver me from evil that my life not grieve me. And this is exactly what the Savior is teaching here. I wonder how Jabez came up with that idea when he was 1,500 years before Jesus gave us Matthew chapter 6. Or do you still think it's the Spirit of God? because I read that God heard that prayer and gave him his answer it must have been a spiritual prayer Lord don't bring extra evil into my life don't bring extra trouble difficulties, trials, temptations don't bring them into my life please have mercy upon me O oh Lord lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil Put your protecting hedge about us. Keep us safe like you kept Job. I don't think I can manage it unless you protect me. These are the sense of the words right here. For thine is the kingdom. All of it is summed up this way. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God has all the kingly power and authority. He has all the honor. He has all the glory And so we admit that when we pray, Lord, we're praying to you because you have it all. You are able to do everything we're asking, and we trust you completely. Amen. Amen. And when we say amen, we mean we agree with what we have just said, and we confirm it as truth by saying the word amen. And so the short model prayer is finished in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Now in verse 14... Jesus realized that he had said something in that prayer that he wanted to elaborate on that's very hard for all of us. So he says in verse 14, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those two verses are clearly a commentary on verse 12. Clearly, Jesus finished the prayer realized he had said something that needed further elaboration, and we all know it, don't we? Oh, we want God's forgiveness, don't we? We get very eager for God's forgiveness, but sometimes we have a hard heart to forgive others. And so we have these two verses, and Jesus explains again, we understood enough from verse 12, but he wants to tell us how important this is, that if we expect God to forgive us our sins in a practical way, so that we have fellowship with God our Father again, when sin is separated between us and God, and we confess it, fellowship is restored with God. But that restoration will not take place if we do not forgive others who sin against us. And listen, folks. We are all a bunch of proud, selfish beings by nature. And so we are going to sin against each other and offend each other and trespass against each other, and hurt each other's feelings, and if we don't learn to forgive each other, and overlook it and blow it all away, when we get down in prayer and ask God to forgive us, He's just going to turn away. Because if we won't forgive a peer relationship of what they've done against us, why in the world should God forgive us sinning against the infinite God of heaven? Does that make sense to you? It makes perfectly good sense to me, I thank the Lord that he's made it so easy. Now, is that hard to forgive someone else? Is it hard to forgive your sister? You're wondering what she's going to say, aren't you? Is it hard to forgive your brother Austin? Don't answer me. It's hard sometimes, isn't it? And it's hard for all of us. But look at those verses. are pretty simple, aren't they? Can we all understand those verses? Alex, can you understand them? Verse 14, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you'll forgive Austin when he... Well, you do not he doesn't hurt you very often. If you forgive him when he hurts you, God will forgive you when you pray, Austin. And there's going to be times in your life, Austin, where you want God to forgive you because you know you have been a fool and you have sinned greatly in his sight And you are trembling before the great God of heaven. And when you go to him in prayer and you're begging for his mercy, you want him to show you mercy. Do you know how you can get, how, how the Lord taught us right here to get some of that mercy? Show that mercy towards your brother. Every single one of us, we all know we want God's forgiveness. You know how we get it? By forgiving those who irritate us. And is there, any, is there any shortage of irritation in this congregation? Or is there plenty for us to uh, earn some mercy from heaven by overlooking the irritations that we cause each other? This is the word of the Lord. And it's wonderful and precious. Amen. You know, David said with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. Right. How'd David know that 1,000 B.C.? Do you think it was that spirit again that was teaching him? A man after God's own heart, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. In your relationships with other people, on which side do you want to err? The err of truth or the err of the side of the side of truth or the side of mercy? Mercy. I want to err on the side of mercy because when I'm dealing with the Lord, I want the Lord to, and I don't really mean err because He never errs, but I want Him on the side of mercy with me. So every time I can forgive someone and overlook something, I want to do it. I want to do it cheerfully, and I hope that you'll do it with me. And I hope if you don't see me doing it, you'll help me do it. And I hope that we'll all stick together forgiving each other and living happily together as a church that forgives each other all the offenses that cause cliques, cause bitterness, cause grudges. All those things don't belong in a church of Jesus Christ. They don't belong in a Christian family. They don't belong in our hearts. And if we get rid of it all, when we go to Him... He'll forgive us quickly, cheerfully, fully, just as we have forgiven others. Isn't that wonderful? He's the infinite God. My offense against Him is great. Your offense against me is nothing in comparison. That's easy. Lord, help us. Very quickly, how do we put this into practice? Be very cautious when you pray in public, whether it's here or in your home, that you're only caring about the ears of God, not the ears of men. A more common problem that I find in this church is a reluctance to pray in public. And that's also a problem because you must not think that prayer is very important, or you have a fear of man that exceeds your love of God. Otherwise, you'd be able to stand up and pray to the God of heaven without caring what men think. If you don't raise your hand to pray, it must be because you're too worried about what other men are going to think about your prayer, and that's why you don't pray. Or you don't love God. Oh, and both of those alternatives are horrible, so I hope that tonight I'll see some more hands. (laughs) When we do pray in private, we don't have to go into our closet. We don't have to close the door. If you go into a closet and close the door your prayer is not going to travel faster to heaven because you're keeping Matthew 6 literally. The Lord will just look at you and wonder why you didn't learn anything on Sunday morning. That's That's what He'll think. Why didn't you learn anything? I didn't mean your closet. I meant don't stand up in the street and pray to be seen or heard of men. We want to make sure that we spend more time in private prayer without anyone knowing than prayers that others see and hear. Does that make sense to you? You know, especially fathers, we pray in front of our families. Many times, I hope many times a week. We want to make sure that we pray more in private than we do in front of them, or we're hypocrites. We want to pray with our understanding and not use memorized prayers. Don't teach your children memorized prayers. Teach your children the Word of God and how to speak to God as their Heavenly Father. They can talk to him like they talk to you, with respect and affection. But it can be done and it should be done. I like the Apostle Paul. He tells us in four different places in the New Testament that when he prayed, now now follow very closely because you've read these words many times. I've, I've told you about this once or twice. He would say that I always remember you. And you know, when you read this over and over by the Apostle Paul, you say, how could Paul remember everyone in every church when he prayed? He would say, I always remember you, making mention of you in my prayers. There is great mercy in those words, brethren. Right. The Apostle Paul, when he got to the Philippian church, did not go into a 15-minute paragraph explaining to the Lord that the Philippian church was a church in Macedonia that had certain members and that he had gone there with Barnabas or Silas and they had spent some time in prison there and that there was a member there named Lydia. He did not have to go into all those details. Sometimes when I hear us pray, when I say us, do you know what that means? That means you and me. When I hear us pray and we're giving God so many details it's as if we're running into the much-speaking problem of Matthew chapter 6, 7, and 8 because we're, we're acting like God doesn't know about the circumstances. Relating to God, all the circumstances about a prayer request don't help the prayer request. It isn't a sign of fervency. Fervency is believing God. Right. And so we can make mention. I can see the Apostle Paul in the middle of a prayer saying, Lord, I thank you for those wonderful brethren in Philippi and I thank you for the wonderful brother in Colossae. You say, it might be that short for the Philippians Amen. so that he can write that epistle and say, I make mention of you in all my prayers? Ryan. Yes. Do you want to try to imagine some other way of praying for the whole New Testament? <laughs> I thank God for those words making mention. You know all, Because you are using your heart and your mind to say, Lord, there's a church in Philippi that needs you. Every day, Lord, there's a church in Philippi that needs you. You don't have to relate a whole lot of circumstances, because guess what? Our Father already knows them all. May the Lord help us to put things like that into practice. Very simply, can I give you five things to remember about prayer? Five, you know, when you you start a prayer, I will give you five things to memorize. And they're not words to say, they're a format for your prayer. Praise God, confess your sins, thank God, make your petition, and bring in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the name we want to invoke. Those five things again, praise God, and you begin praising God as soon as you say, dear heavenly Father, look what you're saying, He is your Father. In every way that you want to think about it, He's in heaven. You can describe Him as the creator of heaven and earth, but praise Him. Just open up your prayer and praise Him. Praise God. Confess your sins. We were taught that this morning. Thank God for all the things He has done for you already. Lay your petitions before Him after your thanksgivings and invoke the name of Jesus Christ. Five things. I would learn those five little combinations. Praise God. Confess sins. Thank God. Petition God. Acknowledge Jesus Christ. And so when you start a prayer, you should keep in the back of your mind each one of those five. Because what can happen is you can blow through a prayer and forget number two. I didn't confess my sins. You know, when you look back at your prayer, you say, I didn't even confess my sins. What kind of a prayer was that? Jesus taught me that the format for prayer should include the confession of my sins. Or you pray sometime and you're so worried about something that you forget to thank God for all the things He has done. And so you praise Him, and you confess your sins, and you petition Him, and you mention Christ, but you don't thank Him. Five things to remember when you pray, just to give you a format that we learned this morning, so that when you pray, and see, the Lord doesn't mind that you're thinking about praying effectually. The Bible says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Do you know what effectual means? It means a prayer that God accepts and works. And so if you're thinking while you're praying, Lord, I don't want to forget anything that I owe you in my prayer, you'll quickly memorize those five things and make sure they're in each one of your prayers. Right. Do you remember the first of the year when Brother Newell took the morning service when I was on vacation and gave you an introduction to effectual prayer? And in the evening, ten young men stood in this pulpit and preached short, short sermonettes to you about how to pray? Do you remember that? It's been five months already. We wanted to emphasize prayer this year. It's already May. We need to emphasize it, don't we? I fear that our biggest problem is not how to pray. Our biggest problem is not praying enough. May the Lord cause us by these words that you have in the red writing of your red letter edition Bibles. To know that prayer was an important thing to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did he condemn three wrong ways of praying, but he gave us a sample prayer himself. May we be men and women of prayer and children of prayer. Prayer is the breath of a spiritual soul. Right. It can't live without it. It's part of walking with God. Is how else do you walk with God by talking with him through prayer? You can pray anywhere. You can be talking to God At any time. Let's make sure that we are. Let's not be so worried about the complexity of prayer because it's not complex. It's actually quite simple. Look at that simple little Lord's Prayer. But let's make sure that we are praying. May the Lord bless us to be faithful, praying saints here in Greenville. Amen.